Thank you, Connie. Would you stand with us, please, as Aaron comes this morning to read to us from the book of Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord from Titus 3, 3 through 11. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, here on our last Sunday in the epistle to Titus, I want to begin by quoting J.D. Greer, who is a, a Southern Baptist leader in our denomination today. And I want to make clear that this quote comes from J.D. Greer and not from me, okay? And for the dozen of you who get why I'm saying that, uh, I'll say it one more time. J.D. Greer said this, During the pandemic, several people became one of five things. They either became a hunk, a chunk, a monk, a drunk, or a punk. It's pretty well said. Some people, when they spent a lot of extra time at home, actually used that as a time to get in pretty good shape. Others might have made that their goal, but instead of becoming a hunk, they became a little more of a chunk. And others might have really dug deep into their spiritual life and felt a little more like a monk, or perhaps they fell into some bad habits and even became a drunk or like many many people we've seen especially in the world of social media some people became even more of a punk during this time i thought that was well said perhaps here's a more spiritual way to say it in the last almost two years more people have been shaped by their circumstances as opposed to surrendering their circumstances to god and following his will and, and for all of us, that's probably been true to at least a certain degree. So many things in the last almost two years now, can you believe that, have been so outside of our control that perhaps it's been almost impossible that our circumstances not shape us in some ways as opposed to us surrendering our circumstances to the Lord and, and seeking His will. And as we finish out the epistle to Titus today, I think Paul was writing to this young pastor, Titus, who was dealing with a lot of folks in, in, in the churches on the island of Crete who were in similar circumstances. There had been a lot of difficult things that they had faced. There had been external pressures and persecution. There had also been internal division and infighting and, and bad attitudes and, 
and many people who were unwilling to be flexible or even to take a listening posture towards others but instead were were standing on their principles which were more like their preferences and their opinions and and you could tell by even just the beginning of this letter to Titus the churches that he was dealing with were in a mess and so very similarly to I think what what perhaps we experience and see around us is a lot of, of mess and a lot of darkness and division One of the things that comes out of this letter, which I began with last week, and I'll continue as we close today, is followers of Christ should know better. And I think Paul is saying this to Titus and to the Christians on Crete in a lot of different circumstances. In one of the more positive, productive ways, Titus is is being told, hey, don't fight this fight alone. But if you feel like you're surrounded by a bunch of people who just want to cause trouble aren't really living out what they say they believe go find some new people find some reliable trustworthy leaders to gather around you men and women of all ages who titus when you look at their lives you see evidence that they they believe what they say they believe so don't just go find more people who who know all the right answers but aren't really living it out Go find reliable, trustworthy people to come alongside you. And if you all will will follow the Lord closely, if you will walk knowing that followers of Christ should know better than to get in the midst of so many of these things that, that even these folks in the ancient world were dealing with, you will find a way out through the Holy Spirit and, and your churches will experience renewal. And so as I read through this letter and as we've been studying it, this short letter We've only been doing this for a few weeks, and we're going to finish today. I hear a word from our brothers and sisters in Christ in the past, including Paul, including Titus, speaking to us today and saying, followers of Christ indeed know better, so let's live like it. One of the things I love about this epistle, you you have to read after the New Testament to find this, but there's actually really good evidence that what Titus was commissioned to do and the words that Paul gave him were effective because there's, there's solid historical documentation that into the next generation of Christians on Crete, things actually got better. The churches actually really did grow again and they seemed to, to experience more health. For 150 years or so after the New Testament, you can find evidence of solid Christian communities on the island of Crete. Doesn't appear to be the case when Paul's writing to Titus. Even in some times when, when people were persecuted so severely on Crete that they gave up their lives for the gospel and the work of the kingdom. They were martyred as faithful followers of Jesus. So, so again, let's listen and learn one more time to those who went before us and, and also to those who I think we can call a success story because reading on into the future, the work that the Lord commissioned Titus to do seemed to be effective. So we begin here in chapter 3 this morning. We began in our reading with verse 3, but I want to go backwards just a little bit to verses 1 and 2 to remember what Paul had just said to Titus as then we jump into verse 3. What he had just said was, Prepare the people at all times to be ready to do whatever is good and to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, to be thoughtful, and always to be gentle toward everyone. 
I think this is important to to have foundationally before we go into verse 3 so that we don't read verse 3 in a judgmental way. That is, then Paul starts laying out all of these, these negative characteristics that sometimes describe people that we not fall into the trap that perhaps some might have on the island of Crete of saying, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. Or boy, I think I know who Paul's talking about. He's talking about this person or that person. I'm so glad that I'm not like them. And, and in a judgmental, harsh, condescending way, we apply this scripture by looking only down our nose at others instead of what I really believe is at the heart of this. Verse 3 is a reminder of who we used to be. It's a reminder of who we were before our hearts and lives were awakened to our salvation in Christ. It's just like last week I, I asked you to, to raise your hand if because of Jesus Christ you are a different person than you used to be. And this is a reminder of what that used to be was like. So that Paul is not describing others, but he's describing everyone. Before we came to Christ, we were like what, what's been called here the seven deadly sins of Titus. We're given seven different sins here, not to be confused with the seven deadly sins of the Roman Catholic Church and Pope Gregory I, but the way Titus describes what it was like for us when we were lost before Christ opened our hearts and lives to his salvation we too at one time were foolish and we were disobedient we were deceived we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we once lived in malice and in envy and we were hated and, and actually this word here means we were despicable we were hated and we deserved to be hated because we were despicable and we hated one another. But thanks be to God and Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, this no longer describes who we are, it describes who we were. It describes the, the difference between our lives before Christ and our lives after. It's also the difference, in, and I think this is really important, between a couple of different Latin phrases that were very common in the ancient church. We know this first one, mea culpa. We use it in a legal sense of, of pleading guilty or saying it, it is my fault, I am guilty. Or, or, or maybe we might translate it, uh, mea culpa is, is my bad, right? We, my fault is my fault. And there is a sense of this here in, in what Paul writes to Titus. We, we all have to own our personal sin and because we, we each individually have sinned against God, and, and those words in verse 3 in the past did describe all of us at one time, we have to, to undergo personal repentance, where we say, God, forgive me, and, and I'm going to turn from my sin. But there was also this sense, and, and you find this all throughout the New Testament and the ancient church, that together, corporately, we also have to own our sin. Nostra culpa is the idea not just that I've sinned, but that we are all guilty. Every single one of us that, that are now part of the body of Christ, we say together, that also describes who we all used to be. And there have been some times that as the body of Christ, we've all been guilty together. There, there have been some times in, in the history of Christ's people that the church has been on the wrong side. That, that together, corporately, 
We, we've either been a part of things that were wrong or we've been silent in the face of injustice. And together, corporately, we've not been the people that Christ called us to be. And so verse 3, again, it's not meant to be condescending, judgmental. It's not meant to make us want to point more fingers outside, but instead to look inward into our hearts and into our community and to remember that without Christ, this described all of us. Because we've all been guilty of breaking God's commands and laws. We've all been foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice, envy, being hated, and hating one another. But boy, aren't you glad that that's not where the epistle to Titus ends. But the next verses describe what changed. That's who we were. But what changed? Well, everything changed in in the biggest of ways. When, as Paul describes here, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. But remember what he said back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11, he used the same similar language, but he says it was the grace of God that appeared, that offers salvation to all people. That's what changed. And if we put all those words together, we can rightly say that, that Christ and his salvation is the grace, the love, and the kindness of God in flesh and blood so that we when we believe we we no longer have to be described the way verse 3 describes us but now we can rightly say we've experienced the the matchless grace the, the boundless love the incomparable kindness of God in Jesus Christ and he saved us not because of righteous things we've done but because of his mercy that's what has changed. And, and it's a reminder that it is by grace, kindness, and love that we've been saved. Once, as one old preacher said, we, we were no better than our heathen neighbors. But Christian goodness does not make us proud. It makes us grateful. Because of Jesus Christ, we are grateful. We are thankful. Why did God save us through Jesus Christ? Says verse 5 says he saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, not because we deserved it, not because we're good or because of some act of our own will or our own work, but no, he saved us because of his mercy. And this is where the message of the gospel starts. The, the message of the gospel begins with, for God so loved the world, not for the world so loved God, Right? We didn't experience salvation in Jesus Christ because we were so good and we were so faithful at following his commands and loving him back. The, the gospel begins, for God so loved the world, he saved us because he is merciful. He saved us through his grace, his love, and his kindness. And how did God save us through Jesus Christ? The second part of verse 5 into verse 6, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I read those verses, and I can't help but think about the very simple way Jesus said this to Nicodemus. You know this verse well by now this year. John 3, 3. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How did God save us in Jesus Christ? How did God open our eyes to the kingdom of God around us and to the kingdom of God that, that is going to extend on forever and ever into eternity? 
He did it through our new birth. He did it, as Paul says here to Titus, through, through the washing of rebirth, through the literal cleansing of us by his Holy Spirit, that we would be white, whitewashed of all of our, our sins inside and out, that we would be purified and made clean, and that our lives would experience a full renewal through that new birth by the Holy Spirit. And, and listen to what verse 6 says, because it's so important, the language he uses whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. He didn't just give us a little dabble of the Holy Spirit when our hearts and lives were open to Christ Jesus. This is not a drip, drip, drip. It's not a sprinkle. He poured out his Holy Spirit on us generously. And that word generously is literally the word for a very rich man. In other words, out of the, his lavish riches and generosity... God gave us the fullest portion of his own spirit in Jesus Christ so that we don't just have a little bit, but he has washed us completely over. He has poured out his spirit on us so that it is overflowing not only over us, but through us so that when others see us, followers of Christ should know better, they ought to see the outflow, the overflow of the spirit as opposed to the outflow and the overflow of our flesh, which is so often what people see. We've been washed, reborn, renewed through the Holy Spirit, poured out on us generously. And, and I love this, as verse 6, I think, is referring to this verse that we read from the Old Testament a moment ago. But this verse from Ezekiel uses the word sprinkle. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean uh, but then, of course, it goes deeper. I, I'm going to cleanse you completely from all your impurities, from all of your idols. And, and is this not the language of salvation? I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to remove your heart of, of stone, and I'm going to give you a living heart that's like a church. And I will put my spirit in you. And it will be through my spirit that, that you then are moved, that you can actually obey my commands that you will actually have the ability to follow my decrees and, and follow and observe my laws carefully. It's by the Spirit that we do these things. And we might also rightly say it's only by the Spirit that the church, the body of Christ, can actually do anything that is effective. If, if we have a church that is devoid of the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't care what the numbers say, we can do nothing for the kingdom of Christ if not through the Holy Spirit it doesn't matter how many people are sitting in the pews or the chairs or watching online without the Holy Spirit the church is powerless but again thanks be to God through Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit the church even where we fall short can be a part of things that will last forever because they are the work of his eternal kingdom they represent not who we were not who we used to be but what has changed in us and who we are now as Christ's people. We are not the same that we used to be. And, and Paul here chooses to use, I think, the language of Ezekiel, but, but instead of quoting Ezekiel, he moves to the prophet Joel. He doesn't say the Spirit's been sprinkled on us, but it's been poured out. It's the same prophecy that was read on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit first came on the apostles. 
And as Peter's preaching through the Holy Spirit, he quotes Joel chapter 2, the Spirit will be poured out on your sons and your daughters. Generously, lavishly has God given us the Holy Spirit. And we are no longer the same people that we used to be. So verse 7, we've gone from who we were to what changed now to who we are in Jesus Christ. Two results of our salvation. The first is that we have been justified by His grace. We have been declared righteous. We have been saved from death. We have been freed from the punishment of sin. Now I'm going to say all of those things again if you don't say amen after, I'm going to say we didn't have church today, okay? It doesn't count. We have been justified by his grace, which means we have been declared righteous, saved from death, and freed from the punishment of sin. Amen. This, There you go. This is who we are. This is our identity in Christ. This is who he says we are. And not only that, but we are heirs not of an earthly kingdom, not even of an earthly nation. We are heirs of an eternal kingdom that Jesus himself said has been prepared for us since the foundation of the world. And as a part of that inheritance comes, and boy, this is a word we really need during dark and discouraging times. It comes hope, the hope of eternal life, that this is not all there is, that all this messiness, all this darkness, all this division, it's not going to last forever. This is not our inheritance. Christ's kingdom is our inheritance. And, and as I was preparing this series weeks ago, I wrote these words and I've come back to them a few times. I, I really feel like the Lord led me here just with these few weeks before Advent because these days so many people are actually discouraged. Even good church-going folks like us we are tired, we're discouraged, and we're struggling to find hope. But here Paul reminds the church that God has poured out his Holy Spirit on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And as a result, the Spirit-filled life will set us apart from all of that messiness and darkness and division. We don't have to be stuck in it. We certainly don't have to live like it. But as followers of Christ, we know better, and through the powerful Holy Spirit of God, we can overcome, and we can be a light in the midst of this darkness. This is the promise of better days to come, the hope of eternal life. And Paul goes on to say in verse 8, this is a, a, a trustworthy saying. And, and what does he mean? What's a trustworthy saying? Well, it's everything I've just said, Titus. It's these wonderful verses in the middle of this last chapter that are such a beautiful picture of the gospel. When you're discouraged, when you're tired, when there's frustration, he says, I want you to stress these things. Come back to the center of the gospel, Titus. And when folks in your churches are distracted, they feel pulled to the right, to the left, they, they feel drug into these controversies and quarrels and fights, come back to these trustworthy words of the gospel not so that, and this is such an important theme of Titus, not just so that you'll know the right answers again, not just so that you'll be able to refute all the arguments that you're dealing with. Remind the people of these wonderful, excellent, profitable things so that they will 
be careful to devote themselves to do what is good. Such an important theme of this letter is that sound doctrine is not just what we know and believe, but it's also what we do. Doctrine is lifestyle. Indeed, what we do will be a reflection of what we believe. And what we believe in many ways will, will be a reflection of what we do. They, they go together, and, and Paul wants Titus and other Christians to remember it's not just what you know and it's not just what you say, but put these things into practice. And as to those things we read about back in chapter 1, all the controversies that Titus was dealing with in his churches, things like genealogies, which is not like what my grandfather always did, which is actually digging into our family's genealogy, and, and he's blessed me with about 150 pounds of paperwork about our family's genealogy. It's not that. This is arguments like, no, we are the true descendants of Abraham. No, we are the true descendants of Abraham. My people are more blessed than yours. We're favored. You're not. We're better. You're worse. When people are drug into those kinds of arguments, foolish controversies, or when the legalistic Judaizers are trying to pull you back into arguments and quarrels about the law, things that are unprofitable and useless, again, come back to the center of the gospel and remember your hope together in Jesus Christ. And then the last two verses that we read, this is really good, practical, applicable words. These are really important words for all of us. These are for leaders in the church and leaders in life, but they're, they're, they're leaders, they're, they're words for all of us, whether we're leaders or not. Because we all have been blessed with divisive people around us at times and titus is dealing with that in so many different ways and and you get the sense here that paul's saying hey titus not everybody is going to get on board not everybody's actually going to be willing to say they're wrong not everybody's really going to have that change of heart so when you're dealing with unrepentant people who refuse to move who are taking all of your energy and time but there's no change evident in their heart Warn them once, warn them twice, and after that have nothing to do with them. Because it's not worth your time. It's not worth your effort and energy. Until something in their heart changes, you will keep spinning your wheels in the mud, and you'll be getting dirty, and you'll be splashing that mud all over everybody, but it won't really change anything. And this is a good reminder, not just for the church, not just for leaders, but for all of us, who we allow to speak into our life, who we allow to influence us, who we allow into our physical, our mental, and our emotional space. Some people are toxic and divisive, and if what Paul says about them is true, that such people who refuse to repent of that are warped, they're, they're, which is a word that just means they're, they're no longer even their true self. You can't trust anything they say. They're warped, they're sinful, and they're self-condemned. If that's true, then they most certainly will drag you down to their level if you keep them in your life. So Paul says to Titus, when all is said and done, move on. And those folks who refuse to admit that they're wrong, and I even imagine that they're probably doing things like we see today. They're blaming other people for the things that they say and do. In fact, just in the news this last couple of weeks, you can see in the National Football League, since today's an NFL day, 
There's, there's a lawsuit where somebody is suing others for something that that person said. How dare you tell everybody what, what I said in my own words? We even have a similar lawsuit happening right now in our Southern Baptist Convention where one brother is suing another over the words that that first brother said, saying, how dare you tell people what I said in my own words? Why do we fall into these, these same traps even in the church? When the simple command that goes out is repent yourself. Acknowledge your own wrongdoing. If somebody comes to you and, and, and warns you using God's own word as truth, then, then turn from your wicked ways. Stop digging in your heels. And if you've got that person in your life and they just keep digging their heels in further, at some point, at least for a time, perhaps you need to walk away. Into the last words of the letter. Uh, I'm not going to dig into all of this. Uh, really, what Paul does here at the end of Titus is just give a few shout outs to some folks. He, he talks about the fact that, starting in verse 12, that uh, he's going to winter elsewhere, not in the, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, but he's going to winter at Nicopolis, which is in northwestern Greece. And he says, just, you know, as, as I'm heading to that place, um, at some point I might send good old Artemis to see you Only time that this believer is mentioned Or Tychicus which hopefully sounds familiar From back when we were in Ephesians and Colossians A faithful brother of Paul's Or Zenos the lawyer Only mentioned here as well And uh, for the sake of Jeff Steen and others I will make no lawyer jokes here in reference to Zenos And then if this is the same Apollos That's mentioned ten times elsewhere He's one of the early church's most popular teachers. And Paul says, I'm going to do my best to send some folks to you, and, and I either want you to listen to them or help them along the way. Do everything you can for them. But don't miss in the midst of these final parting words a verse that I really think is the summary statement of the epistle to Titus. That, that Paul says as, as one last reminder, and he's used this language once in chapter 1, Twice in chapter 2 and four times he uses this language in chapter 4 Remind our people to devote themselves to doing what is good And, and as they are, are living out doing what is good Remember orthodoxy right belief without orthopraxy right practice is dead It's useless As they are doing that which is good not just saying that which is good Remind them also to provide for urgent needs when those needs come across their path. And to not live unproductive, and, and the, the literal word here is unfruitful. Don't live unfruitful lives, like we said from the beginning, lives that don't reflect the fruit of the Spirit, that don't reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control but remind them to live the opposite live those things out and live them out loud for others to see because followers of christ should know better i've come to the place in my life i don't care if you're a hunk a chunk a monk a drunk or a punk right if i don't see the fruit of god in your life i am probably not going to listen to you and I, and, and I want to live by the same standard in my own life. To do that which is right. To devote myself to doing that which is good. To provide for urgent needs. 
and to live a fruitful and productive life all for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. Followers of Christ should know better. Everyone with me sends you greetings, Paul writes in closing. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I want to invite you as we close, as we come to our time of invitation and response, to bow your heads with me. But I'm going to give you the freedom. If you want to open your eyes during this last part, you can, because I'm going to put these verses on the screen. But, but if you don't want to read them, then if you would just bow your head. Either way, I'm going to speak these words over us. The words of Scripture, these beautiful words from Titus 3 that encapsulate so wonderfully for us the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ and his salvation. And I want you, as, as I pray these words, read and pray them over us, I want you to, to, to receive them. And maybe for you it'll be the first time that you really say, today Christ has opened my heart. He's awakened me to his salvation. It may be for you in the room. It may be for you online. And, and so we're going to give you an opportunity here in just a minute to make that decision public, to step out, to come to Christ and say, today's the day that I really receive that hope of eternal life. But also for those of us who have, who have believed and our hearts have been awakened, would you just, as I pray and, and, and read these words over us, would you just pray that the Lord would plant them deeply in your heart and when you're tempted today, tomorrow, this week, next month, to stray away, to go off, to not surrender your circumstances to him, would you ask him to bring these words back? that you would center your life on the good news of Jesus Christ and the message of his salvation. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Lord Jesus, I pray simply that as we commit this time to you, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would open the eyes of our heart and our physical eyes to the cross, and that we would give thanks for your grace, your love, and your kindness in Jesus Christ. And that wherever we are today, you would meet us in that place, draw us close to you, and draw us forward that we would follow you closely and do your will, that which is good, in the sight of others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.